Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to the 18th episode in our season on Haunted Hollywood, which is, as always, hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. It's been a long, strange season already, going behind the locked doors of Los Angeles and, of course, of Hollywood, the so-called movie capital of the world. It's a place that's supposed to be sunshine, palm trees, swimming pools, and movie stars, but far too often, it's a place of murder, mayhem, broken hearts, and broken dreams. L.A. may be called the City of Angels, but the only angels you'll find on this city streets are the fallen kind. If you're wondering what you've missed so far this season, then go back and start with episode 70. That'll get you caught up and quite possibly have you begging for mercy because the episodes in the Hollywood season are definitely not suitable for all listeners, especially this one. And if you continue on from here, you can't say we didn't warn you. You're still here? Great, because in this episode, we're going to introduce you to perhaps Hollywood's most infamous kook, crank, killer, and lunatic, all wrapped up into one squirrely little man. He's a man who single-handedly shaped not only Hollywood, but the Southern California music community and the dying days of the 1960s. So brace yourselves, put some flowers in your hair, drop a little acid, and make sure you sharpen your knife, and take a walk on the dark side of Hollywood with the Manson family. Charlie Manson died four years ago at the age of 83. Bad karma finally caught up with him, along with cancer and a bum ticker. He would have loved to have lived longer when he could have kept relishing the fact that murders committed in 1969 had made him a sick and twisted icon. Manson is instantly recognizable to all of us, from the crazy eyes and wild hair of his glory days to the swastika-scarred forehead and perpetual sour face of his final years of life. Yes, there have been other killers with higher body counts, like Ted Bundy, who had 35 victims to his name, or Jeffrey Dahmer, who dismembered and ate 16 men and boys, or John Wayne Gacy, convicted of 33 murders, many of whom were buried in the crawl space beneath his suburban Chicago home. Manson wasn't a serial killer like they were, and yet it's Charlie who began haunting our dreams in 1969, and it's never stopped. Presidents come and go, the market rises and falls, wars begin and end, well, some of them anyway, but it seems as if we'll always have Charlie, at least based on the countless books that have been written about him, the TV shows, the documentaries, and a busload of feature films. And let's face it, he was the man who almost single-handedly changed Hollywood, pop music, and according to many who lived in Los Angeles at the time of the murders, brought an end to the peace, love, and happiness of the 1960s. Born Charles Maddox to unmarried 16-year-old Kathleen Maddox in Cincinnati in 1934, Manson never knew his real father. For a time after her son's birth, Kathleen Maddox was married to a laborer named William Manson, and the boy was given his last name. Manson's mother, allegedly a heavy drinker, once sold him for a pitcher of beer to a childless waitress from whom his uncle retrieved him a few days later. When his mother was sentenced to five years in prison for robbing a Charleston, West Virginia service station in 1939, Manson was placed in the home of an aunt and uncle. 
His mother was paroled in 1942 and he was returned to her and to a life of rundown hotel rooms and flop houses. Kathleen could only handle the boy for about five years, and in 1947, she tried to have him placed in a foster home. With no spaces available, the court sent him to a boys' school in Terre Haute, Indiana. After 10 months there, he fled and returned to his mother, who still wanted nothing to do with him. But let's not start feeling sorry for him just yet. Soon after, Manson had his first brush with crime, and he spent the next few years in and out of reformatories and boys' homes, often escaping or being released to simply break the law and wind up incarcerated again. Psychiatrists and social workers who found Manson to be intelligent, they labeled him aggressively antisocial. He was paroled from his last reformatory in Ohio in 1954. After temporarily honoring a parole condition that he lived with his aunt and uncle in West Virginia, Manson sought out his mother again. He moved in with her for a time, and then in January 1955, he married Rosalie Jean Willis, a 17-year-old waitress. He supported them with a series of low-paying jobs and included parking lot attendant and busboy and by stealing cars. In October, Manson stole a car and moved his pregnant wife to Los Angeles. The unlucky Manson was caught again, and this time was charged with interstate theft. After a psychiatric evaluation, he received five years probation, but then failed to show up for a hearing and was arrested again in 1956. This time, he was sentenced to three years at Terminal Island in San Pedro, California. Within a year, his wife was living with another man. She divorced him while he was in prison. Then two weeks before his parole hearing, he tried to escape, and his parole was automatically denied. But it was at Terminal Island that things began to change for Manson. He began attending prison classes that were focused around the popular Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. What was essentially a self-help book for potential salesmen became a how-to guide for Manson on the best ways to manipulate people and then twist them around to his way of thinking. He befriended the pimps and the hustlers that he was locked up with, pumping them for information and for methods to convince people, especially women, to do what he wanted. Finally out of jail in September 1958, he began putting what he learned in prison into practice, pimping a 16-year-old girl and conning money from her wealthy parents. Well, it wasn't long before the chronic lawbreaker was in trouble again. In September 1959, he was charged with trying to cash a forged check, but received a 10-year suspended sentence after a girl named Leona, one of the prostitutes that worked for him, told the court they were in love and would get married if he was freed. They did get married, but Manson kept her working. He took her and another prostitute from California to New Mexico with him. There, Manson was arrested for violation of the Mann Act, which prohibited taking women across state lines for the purposes of prostitution. He was released and went to Texas with the girls where he was arrested again. This time he was sent back to California on a parole violation on the check cashing charge and ordered to serve the original 10 years. As you can see, Charlie Manson was a really bad criminal. Well, he was sent to the federal penitentiary at McNeil Island in Washington, and while there, was taught to play guitar by Alvin Creepy Carpus, once the leader of the Barker Gang. He put Manson on the path to what he would come to believe was his real purpose in life, rock star. Manson finally got out of prison on March 21st, 1967, and by that time, he'd spent more than half of his 32 years behind bars in one institution or another. 
After his release, Manson moved to San Francisco and stumbled into Californians' growing counterculture in Haight-Asbury during the famed Summer of Love. Not only did he begin to develop his influence over women, but he also repurposed himself as an aspiring musician with just enough talent that he managed to get into the fringes of the LA music scene when he later moved south. Neil Young compared him favorably to Bob Dylan, but then again, I'm gonna say Neil Young was probably really high most of the time. Charlie's time in San Francisco is important because he began the early formation of what became known as the family. After meeting Mary Bruner, an assistant librarian at UC Berkeley, they moved in together. Manson soon overcame her resistance to bringing other women into bed with them, and before long, they were sharing Mary's apartment with a dozen or more young women. Manson quickly established himself as a guru of sorts in San Francisco's Haight-Asbury. Using his age, he was normally several years older than his followers, and some of the techniques he'd learned in prison, he soon had his first group of cult followers, most of them young and most of them female. Before the summer was over, Manson and his group of followers piled into an old school bus that had been renovated in hippie style and went south to LA. By now, Charlie's family had started to grow. New followers began to gravitate toward the charismatic little man. He developed a bewildering hypnotic power over the entire family, especially the girls. Even Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor would eventually send him to prison, sensed it. He told Rolling Stone during the trial, quote, I couldn't get someone to go to the local Dairy Queen and get me a milkshake, okay? He had a quality about him that one thousandth of one percent of people have, an aura, a vibe. The girls, who ranged from dropouts and petty criminals to former cheerleaders and homecoming queens, found something in Charlie that spoke to them. Lynette Squeaky Fromm, Susan Sadie Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkle, and Linda Kasabian became Charlie's favorites, while a young man named Charles Tex Watson became his second in command. They cooked his food, made his clothes, had his babies, and let him do their thinking for them. Charlie had them under his spell, and they would do anything he asked them to do. The event that began the road to the murders occurred in 1968. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys picked up two hitchhiking Manson girls one night and brought them to his Pacific Palisades home. He didn't figure that he'd see them again, but a short time later when returning home in the early hours of the morning following a late night recording session, Dennis was approached in his driveway by Manson, who had walked out of his house. Nervous, Dennis asked the bearded, shaggy-haired Manson if he intended to hurt him. Assuring the musician that was not his intention, Manson dropped down and started kissing Wilson's feet. Inside the house, Dennis discovered 12 strangers, mostly girls. At first, Dennis was flattered by the attention and was happy to have a group of pretty young women as house guests since their belief in free love was enthusiastic. Those feelings would change though. When their numbers doubled, they wrecked one of his cars and he ended up with a large medical bill for the treatment of gonorrhea. Dennis and Charlie became friends, and Dennis paid for studio time to record songs written and performed by Manson. Dennis also introduced him to friends in the entertainment business like songwriter Greg Jacobson, record producer Rudy Altabelli, and producer Terry Melcher, who was the son of actress Doris Day. Melcher was then producing albums for bands like The Birds and The Mamas and The Papas. Manson was now getting a taste of the wine, women, and weed that were part of the perks of being a rock star. but all that was about to come crashing down. Just come and say you love me Just 
Give up your work Come on, you can't be So yeah, that's Charlie Manson in all his glory. You can perhaps understand why Dennis did what he did next. Dennis took one of Charlie's songs, changed it up, and used it on one of the Beach Boys albums. Never Learn Not to Love was originally written by Manson under the title Cease to Exist. Dennis believed that Charlie gave him the song. In fact, he later said that he gave him some money and a motorcycle for it, but he neglected to credit Charlie for the lyrics. Well, Manson was outraged by the slight, and when Dennis's manager finally kicked the band of dirty hippies out of the house, Charlie left behind a bullet for Dennis, along with a note saying, I know where your children are. Well, Dennis and Terry Melcher were so spooked by Manson's anger that they cut him off, slamming the door on his dreams. As far as Charlie was concerned, the musician, producer, and others of their kind became the enemy, and Charlie would be the avenging angel. In August 1968, Manson established a home for the family at Spawn's Ranch, not far from Topanga Canyon. The ranch had once been a location for shooting Western films, but by 1968, the old sets were deteriorating and largely abandoned. It was primarily doing business offering horseback rides, and Manson convinced the elderly, nearly blind owner, George Spawn, to allow the family to live at the ranch in return for doing work around the place. And it was not hard to convince him. Manson's girls acted as the old man's eyes and made sure that Spawn was never without a young, nubile bed companion. The family also established an alternate headquarters in Death Valley that fall. The two locations would play a large role in what Manson soon came to believe was going to happen next. Manson's apocalyptic vision would come to him through song. In December 1968, Manson was introduced to the Beatles' White Album. He first heard it while visiting a friend at Topanga Canyon and became obsessed with the Beatles. He believed that some of the songs played right into some of the crazed rhetoric that he'd been spouting for some time, that America was going to become embroiled in a race war between blacks and whites. He told the family that the social turmoil he had been predicting was also foreseen by the Beatles. The White Album songs, he said, spoke to him in code. In fact, he said the album had been intended for the family, a carefully selected group that was being instructed to preserve the world from the coming disastrous events. Charlie forced the family to begin preparing for the apocalypse, which Manson had termed Helter Skelter after the Beatles song. He needed time to think, and within a couple of months, his vision was complete. The family would create an album with songs that would trigger the predicted chaos. Ghastly murders of white people by black attackers would be met with retaliation and a split between the racist and non-racist whites would bring about the white race's annihilation. The blacks would then turn to the family to lead them after the storm had cleared. They were, Manson believed, unable to govern themselves. The family would survive by writing out the conflict in a mysterious cave called the Devil's Hole in Wingate Pass, hidden away in Death Valley. Legend had it that an underground city was below the earth there, and the family planned to stay there until the war ended, no matter how long it took. Family members worked on vehicles and studied maps, preparing for their desert escape. They also worked on songs for their world-changing album. When they were told that Terry Melcher was coming to the house to hear their material, the girls cleaned up and prepared a huge meal, but Melcher never showed up. On March 23, 1969, Manson decided to go find Melcher. He went uninvited to what he knew was Melcher's house, 
10050 Cielo Drive. The house was actually owned by Rudy Altabelli, and Melcher had once been a tenant, but he no longer lived there. The new tenants were film director Roman Polanski and his wife, actress Sharon Tate. Manson was confronted by a photographer friend of Sharon's who told him that Melcher no longer lived there. When Manson asked where he'd moved to, he advised him to try asking at the guest house on the property. While he was on the porch, Sharon appeared in the doorway to see who was there. Manson left without a word, knocked on the door of the guest house, then left. He returned to the guest house that evening and spoke to Rudy Altabelli, who was just getting out of the shower. Although Manson didn't ask for Melcher, Rudy got the impression he was looking for him. He told Manson that Melcher had moved to Malibu, but he lied and said he didn't know his new address. Manson tried to get Rudy to listen to the family's new recordings, but Rudy told him he was going out of the country the next day. When Manson said he'd like to speak with him upon his return, Rudy lied and said he wouldn't be back for more than a year. He also told Manson not to come back to the property because he didn't want his tenants disturbed. Manson left. As Altabelli flew with Sharon Tate to Rome the next day, Sharon asked him whether that, quote, creepy-looking guy had shown up at the guest house. Rudy admitted that he had, but assured Sharon that she'd never see him again. A short time later, Manson did manage to track down Terry Melcher, who reluctantly agreed to visit Spawn Ranch and hear a performance by Manson and the girls. Melcher showed up this time, but he wasn't interested in producing anything for them. He did give them a little money, though, because he thought that some of the family members looked hungry. Well, Manson was still no closer to recording his world-changing album, so he decided he might need to find another way to make things happen. By June, Manson was telling the family that they might have to show the blacks how to start Helter Skelter. They wouldn't be able to figure it out without the Manson family's music to show them the way. When Manson gave Tex Watson the job of getting money together to help the family with the conflict to come, Watson ripped off a black drug dealer named Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. After the dealer threatened the family, Manson shot him at his apartment on July 1st. He assumed Crow was dead, a mistake confirmed by a news report that announced the discovery of the body of a Black Panther member in Los Angeles. Crow was not a Black Panther, but Manson was so paranoid that he began to prepare for retaliation from the radical group. He turned the Spawn Ranch into an armed camp. The family was now convinced that Helter Skelter was coming. Still looking for money, Manson sent occasional family member Bobby Beausoleil, along with Mary Bruner and Susan Atkins, to the home of acquaintance and music teacher Gary Hinman on July 25, 1969. Manson had heard rumors that Hinman had recently inherited some money, and Manson wanted it. The three family members held an uncooperative Hinman hostage for two days, during which Manson showed up to threaten him and used a sword to slash his ear. After that, Boussoulet stabbed Hinman to death, acting on Manson's instructions. Before leaving the Topanga Canyon residence, Boussoulet, or one of the girls, used Hinman's blood to write, quote, political piggy on the wall and to draw a panther paw, a symbol of the Black Panthers. He wanted to convince the police that black radicals had committed the crime. If he could inflame white resentment against African-Americans, Manson believed his race war would begin. 
But detectives weren't buying it. Bobby Beausoleil was arrested on August 6, 1969, while driving Hinman's car. The murder weapon was found in the tire well. Again, these people were not what you would call criminal geniuses. Two days later, Manson told the family members at Spawn Ranch, quote, now is the time for Helter Skelter. He wanted things to escalate. By planning a murder that was similar to Hinman's, including the racial graffiti, he could not only put the blame on black killers, he could also make it look as though the police got the wrong man when they arrested Beausoleil. He couldn't commit an identical murder if he was in jail, right? Well, just before midnight on August 8th, four members of the family, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kinsabian, dressed in black and were sent with instructions from Manson to go to, quote, that house where Melcher used to live, and again, quote, destroy everyone as gruesome as you can. They were then told to leave something witchy, something dramatic and awful they could shock the rich people in their Hollywood mansions. Well, Manson didn't know the people who lived in the house, director Roman Polanski and his wife, actress Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant at the time, but Sharon was home. Polanski was in London making a film, but she had company. Roman's friend, Wojciech Frykowski, coffee heiress Abigail Folger, and celebrity hairdresser Jay Sebring, an ex-boyfriend of Sharon's. The witchy thing that Manson followers did was to butcher everyone in the house, plus a fifth victim, Steve Parent, a friend of the caretaker who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, these were not simple executions. While Linda Kasabian stood guard outside, the other three knifed the victims 102 times in total. There was blood all over the house, pooled on floors, dripping down the walls, and soaking the furniture. The first person to encounter the intruders was Frykowski, who was sleeping on the living room couch. When he awoke, Watson kicked him in the head. He asked who he was and what he was doing there, and Watson replied, quote, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Susan Atkins found the three other occupants of the house and with Krenwinkel's help, brought them into the living room. Watson tied Sharon and Jay together by their necks with a rope that he'd brought with him and threw it up over a ceiling beam. When Jay protested about his rough treatment of the pregnant Sharon, Watson shot him. After Abigail Fulcher was taken into the bedroom to get her purse, which held about $70, Watson stabbed Jay seven times with a large knife. Wojciech, whose hands had been tied together with a towel, managed to get free and began struggling with Atkins, who stabbed him in the legs with the knife she was carrying. He managed to get loose and began running for the front door, but Watson caught up with him on the porch and struck him several times with the gun, stabbed him repeatedly, and then shot him twice. Around this time, Linda Kasabian came up from the driveway after hearing what she later described as, quote, horrifying sounds. In a vain effort to halt the massacre, she lied to Atkins telling her that someone was coming. Abigail escaped from Krenwinkel and ran out a bedroom door to the pool area. Krenwinkel pursued her and tackled her in the yard. She was stabbed several times by Krenwinkel and then Watson joined in with his own knife. Abigail died after being stabbed 28 times. Wojciech had been stabbed 51 times. Tex Watkins, Susan Atkins, or both of them, killed Sharon who was stabbed 16 times. She pleaded with her killers to let her live long enough to have her baby. They refused. She called out for her mother before she died. 
Susan Atkins didn't do herself any favors by later boasting she tasted Sharon's blood and confiding that if she'd had time, she would have cut the baby from her womb. She did, however, have time to write pig on the front door with a towel soaked in Sharon's blood. Then they fled the scene, changed out of their blood-soaked clothing, and dumped the clothes and weapons in the hills. The next night, the family members from the previous night's murder, plus Leslie Van Houten, were sent to commit more crimes. This time, Manson went along with them. He gave Kasabian directions to 3301 Waverly Drive, home of supermarket executive Pasqualino Lino LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary, who was the co-owner of an upscale women's clothing store. Manson and Watson went into the house first, and according to Watson's later version of the events, Manson ordered him to bind Lino LaBianca's hands with a leather cord. Rosemary LaBianca was brought into the living room, and Watson followed Manson's instructions to put pillowcases over the couple's heads. Manson then left, sending Krenwinkle and Leslie Van Houten into the house with instructions that the couple be killed. The Spanish-style mansion became a slaughterhouse. Krenwinkle stabbed Lino LaBianca 14 times with a carving fork, which she left jutting out of his stomach. Tex Watson stabbed him another 12 times and then carved the word war into his abdomen. Manson had been irritated that the messages left behind at the Polanski house had been too vague. He wanted it to be clear that the murders were the start of an uprising. Krenwinkle stabbed Rosemary repeatedly. Watson, told by Manson that all the girls had to play a part in the murders, ordered Van Houten to stab her too. She jammed a knife into Rosemary's back and buttocks, and Rosemary died after being stabbed 41 times. The house was covered with slogans written in blood like rise and death to pigs. Krenwinkel wrote Helter Skelter on the refrigerator door. She had heard Charlie say it a lot, but didn't know how to spell it, so she stuck an A in the middle of Helter. Wow. The investigation into the murders was not resolved right away. In fact, it took months before a connection was even made between the two murder scenes. Veteran detectives working the Tate murders were convinced that they happened because of a drug deal gone bad. Well, in October, the family was arrested during a raid on their ranch looking for stolen cars and dune buggies. At this point, there was nothing that tied them to the murders. Then while in jail, Susan Atkins bragged about the killings to her cellmates one of whom called her attorney who turned the information over to the police. As family members began to be rounded up, detectives began linking them to the two crime scenes through fingerprints, trace evidence, and blood samples. The clothing and weapons dumped near the Tate house were recovered and also linked to the killers. The murders were horrific, but the trial, which began in July 1970, was almost as grotesque. Manson demonstrated a bewildering hypnotic effect over his followers, which had now swelled to nearly 100 and almost all of them girls. When he carved an X into his forehead, they carved X's into theirs. When he shaved his head, they shaved theirs. All the defendants were defiant and none of them showed any remorse. Other family members who had not been charged kept a vigil through the nine month trial on the sidewalk outside the Hall of Justice. Following their arrests, Manson and his followers had briefly become counterculture celebrities. You know, hippies being prosecuted by the man until their guilt became too impossible to ignore. Joan Didion, who bought a dress from a boutique in Beverly Hills for Linda Kasabian when she testified against Manson in exchange for immunity, provided the most widely accepted interpretation of events. The murders had killed the 1960s. Manson had not been at Cielo Drive 
and his active participation at the LaBianca house was limited to tying the couple up. Nevertheless, when the trial ended in April 1971, he, along with Atkins, Krenwickel, and Van Houten were sentenced to death, which was then commuted to life with the possibility of parole when the death penalty was abolished in California the following year. Manson spent the next 46 years bouncing around the California prison system. He was denied parole 12 times. He died in prison in 2017. Manson's apocalyptic roadmap to a race war, thankfully, never came about. It was a method of madness created by a disturbed, narcissistic, manipulative mind that had never come to pass. And because of this, many have questioned the truth of the motive. Did Manson really believe the Beatles were speaking to him? Or was it merely a sensational idea cooked up by an ambitious prosecutor? We may never know the truth, but believer in Helter Skelter or not, Manson was dangerous. He was no hero or person to be admired. He was a monster. I've always been sickened by the idea that people look at him as a criminal celebrity. He wasn't. He was an evil little man who destroyed dozens and dozens of lives and left a stain behind on Los Angeles and on the house on Cielo Drive where Sharon Tate and her friends were killed. The house had been built by French movie actress Michelle Morgan in 1941 and was later owned by Rudy Altabelli, who rented out to high-profile clients and celebrity friends like Cary Grant and Diane Cannon. In the summer of 1966, he leased it to music producer Terry Melcher and his girlfriend Candace Bergen. When they moved to Malibu, the lease was taken over by Polanski and his wife Sharon. Sharon dubbed the soon-to-be-infamous getaway the, quote, love house. After the murders, Altabelli turned out to be something of a jerk. He sued Life magazine and Roman Polanski after a photo appeared in the magazine showing Roman a few feet from the front door that had been marked with Sharon's blood. The photos had been taken because Polanski wanted to give them to a psychic to track down the then unknown killers. Altabelli claimed that the pictures would hurt the home's resale value. He then sent a huge repair bill to Sharon's parents for the damage that was done to the house during the murders. When Sharon's father sent a sarcastic letter back, Altabelli sued the dead actress's estate for $480,000, including $300,000 for himself for, quote, embarrassment, humiliation, emotional, and mental distress. The court ultimately awarded him just $4,000. He told the press, quote, this was not a personal vendetta against Sharon Tate or her family. It was just business. Nice. Just three weeks after the murders, Altabelli, likely resigned to the address's overwhelming stigma, moved back into the main house. He lived there until September 1988, when he very publicly put the house back on the market. After that, it was owned by two different real estate investors before being rented to Nine Inch Nails frontman Trent Reznor. Reznor later claimed not to have known of its tragic history when he decided to rent the place, which I find Hard to believe. It was only after reading the lease agreement, which included a legal disclosure about what had happened there, he said that he learned the truth. So, in a morbid flourish, he turned the living room in which Sharon had died into a recording studio, a recording studio that he dubbed Pig. And it was there he used it to record and mix his landmark 1994 album, The Downward Spiral. Reznor later said that he knew that something was wrong with the house. In a 2000 interview, he told an unsettling story about his first night in the home. And this is a quote. 
The first night was terrifying. By then, I knew all about the place. I read all the books about the Manson murder. So I walked the place at night and everything was dark. And I was like, holy Jesus, that's where it happened. Scary. I jumped a mile at every sound, even if it was an owl. I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a coyote looking in the window at me. And I thought, I'm not going to make it. Well, later, Reznor was apologetic. He denied rampant speculation that the murders in any way inspired the downward spiral. But in a 1997 interview with Rolling Stone, he expressed regret for renting the house at all. Reznor moved out of the Cielo Drive house in December 1993, making him its last known resident. Knowing that the house would be torn down in a macabre final gesture and one that kind of undercuts the change of heart he claimed to have had about the house, he removed the front door and installed it at the New Orleans headquarters of his record label, Nothing Studios, which had been converted from a former funeral home. And I can't criticize him too much. I probably would have done the same thing. Anyway, the house on Cielo Drive was torn down in early 1994. In an effort to discourage trespassers and the morbid curious, the owner changed the street address to 10066. We went to great pains to get rid of everything, he said. There's no house, no dirt, no blade of grass remotely connected to Sharon Tate. Well, the physical reminders were gone, but he forgot one thing, as we'll soon see. In 2002, David Oman moved to a new home just 150 feet from the location of the Polanski house at 10050 Cielo Drive. The mansion where the murders took place had been torn down, but a different house was built on the site. Five years after that, that house was also torn down. Oman's father purchased a nearby plot and together they built a house on it. During construction, a worker told Oman he heard voices and footsteps coming from the top floor and then he knew he wasn't alone. On further inspection though, he found there was nobody there. Others claimed to hear voices and footsteps and feeling a cold breeze on the back of their necks. Then in July 2004, Oman woke from a deep sleep at 2 a.m. to find an apparition of a man at the bottom of his bed pointing towards the driveway which leads to the murder site. There was no sound. The figure gestured three times and then disappeared. Fascinated and curious, he went to the LAPD to see if items from the murder had been left on the once vacant lot that held his house. If a bloodied piece of clothing or a knife carrying the victim's DNA had been on this property, that might somehow serve as a connection, he thought. And that's when he saw a photo of Jay Sebring, Sharon Tate's close friend and the hairdresser who was also brutally murdered on that horrible night. Jay bore an eerie resemblance to the figure he'd seen at his bedside. Paranormal activity at the house became something of an obsession for Oman. He has had dozens of paranormal investigators in the house from Barry Taft from the Entity case to Ghost Adventures, and all of them agree that it's actively haunted. In fact, Barry Taft said that out of the 4,000 places he's investigated, the Oman house is the most haunted. Well, living there has never phased Oman, though. He isn't fearful of ghosts or paranormal activity. Like many of us, he has often stated he's more afraid of the living than the dead. With all the activity that he had experienced in the house, he's come to believe that Sharon Tate is at least one of the spirits in the house, refusing to leave the property where she died. One night during a seance, a group of people were gathered in the living room and Oman literally heard Sharon whisper, I want you to know we're here into his ear. Spooky? Absolutely. True? I guess that's up to you to decide. Whether Sharon Tate still lingers at the place where she died remains unknown, but there are things about her death that we do know for sure. 
While the murders in the summer of 69 didn't ignite a race war, they did achieve at least part of their intended effect. The spookiness of it all, the grisly body carvings, the hundreds of stab wounds, the bloody messages left on walls and doors, the randomness of the killings, all of it raised the level of crimes from slayings to atrocities, creating a nationwide terror. People used to leave their doors unlocked in the 1960s, but the idea that someone could be roaming through your neighborhood and just decide to pay a visit to your house, well, that kind of terror has continued to haunt us over the decades. They're um, not, what us white people call dangerous. I know. Well, they're also not so fizzy. Like they're not white so fizzy. claws. Oh yeah, they're yeah. too fizzy for me. I can't stand them. And it's nice. It's nice to drink vodka with something else in it. Yeah. Instead of just well, you sure. know, how I yeah, usually yeah. drink yeah. vodka. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. All right. Here we go. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season five of the podcast, Haunted Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey. What's up, dude? We're in your office. I know. Uh, it's hot. It's really is it? hot outside. I run cold. Yeah, it's not bad in here. Oh, yeah. But, no, it's, uh, it's, it's fine. It's very now. hot outside. It is really hot outside. Um, people were messaging me yesterday saying, like, uh, like or I was, like, reading Instagram things, and they're like, oh, I, like, missed the winter. I was like, no. No, no well, I, let's I not would, get carried away. I would rather but, melt than freeze, personally. Yeah. I can't operate when it's cold. No. I uh, Yeah, I'd rather be hot than cold, but... I'd really rather be somewhere in the middle. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. I would like it to be world. 75 for a high all year round. Yeah. So that would be perfect. People are like, well, you can always, you know, put on more layers. And I'm like, you don't understand. Yeah. I can't, I, I yeah. can't focus when I'm too cold and um, I hate it. So I also, I want to apologize <laughs> if my voice is a little uh, hoarse or anything. I, um, I had, a, I had a drive today. And so I was like belting out some songs, but also <laughs> if my little brothers are listening, I smoked two cigarettes last night Uh-oh. and that makes all the difference Uh-oh. in the world when you're old yeah and i'm Uh-oh, learning that bad. and i uh, i don't like that i went down to uh raging cajun saw charlie brock oh good play, finally play some tunes play music again yeah play play music and uh, it was a great time alton was dead um which is you know par for the course for alton but yeah uh, yeah yeah um, well we were in st louis and downtown st louis is a ghost town really yeah at night oh um, i saw you guys went to the baseball we game. did didn't and even call a, me we had a really good time at the baseball game that's and awesome but again, they opened up full capacity and, mm-hmm. and it was not even half full. Really? Which, fine, whatever. Well, I mean, you know, um, I, I know maybe Ch- people are, you know, smart enough to stay home if they're not vaccinated. So I know in Chicago when they had that Cards Cubs game, it was like completely Impact. sold out. Yeah, completely yeah. sold out. And then they just so. swept them. Yeah. God, I, I made so much money on the Cubs, but so many people are mad about that. But anyway, <laughs> the odds were too good. Um, what's been going on with you, man? What, what do we got coming up? Well, I now that summer is actually here. Um, ironically, most of our summer events are sold yeah, out. Uh, we do. We, yeah, I know we do have some stuff available still, but most of it, um, most now, uh, we've just started gearing up toward fall. I just posted all of the, uh, river road tours scheduled for the fall. Um, we just posted the dinner events for the fall. We, uh, will be hosting or posting, hosting and posting. Both. Um, Yeah our uh, ghost hunts for the fall uh, all going up on the page so um if you're looking for the river road tours or the dinners it's dinnerandspirits.com 
Uh, we've got stuff coming up. The Hell Hath No Fury, Edgar Allan Poe, St. Louis Exorcism, of course, Ghosts mm -hmm. on Film, Sinister Hauntings. So we've got some new stuff and some old favorites coming up for the fall. So if you haven't or have put it off this spring or didn't want to get out or whatever, uh, fall's going to be your chance to see some of these events that sold out early um, during the spring and the summer. So uh, we just started posting that stuff. Uh, but while it is still summer, we, we do have that deal going still. For podcast listeners only, yes, 10% off your tickets if you buy tickets to either the Alton Hauntings Tours or the Weird Chicago Tours this summer. All you have to do when you make your reservation for e either of the tours, uh, use the promo code HOLIDAY and you'll get 10% off your tickets, no matter how many you buy. So awesome. um, you can buy one or you can buy 10 or whatever. But anyway, just for podcast listeners. Preferably double digits. Um, yeah. <laughs> what? Okay. This might sound like a dumb question, but what is ghost on film? I'm curious about this. Well, one. you'll have to find out. Oh, it's not going to be movies. It, it'll well, be like that. weird spirit photographs yeah. and things. And Are you just going to like rail uh, against yeah, them? No, no, no. Cause no? there's a lot of really cool spooky ones out there. So I'm going to be trying to, to find, well, I'm going to find and track down the, the most believed to be the most authentic, um, instances of ghosts being captured the ones on you can't debunk immediately right, kind right. of thing that you know that have withstood the test of time did i tell you i did um i did an event i think it was maybe two years ago uh for edwardsville library during october yeah. they reached out yeah. to us and i was like troy's slammed like <laughs> yeah. i'll take this and i did just uh, kind of a overview of you know what the podcast was and then um alton hauntings and things like that and i took a picture of the mineral springs pool and I took that uh, Shia LaBeouf thing where he's like, just do it. I took that and I Photoshopped it in there and I like faded it really lightly <laughs> and put it there. And I showed people and I was like, here's like, you know, photographic evidence of a ghost. And the next slide is like, except this is what I did. And I yeah. showed him like the yeah. full thing. Right, right. Uh, so that, that'd be interesting to see yeah. what you're going to do. Which event this summer are you most looking forward to? Now that things have turned around, this is a very different summer than we had last time. Yeah, oh, what, yeah. Are you, what are you looking yeah. forward to well, the most? What a, well the conference of oh, course oh, okay. I mean yeah. which is Dumb you question. know which yeah. we had sold out for a while but so I'm really looking forward to the conference but I'm also um, you know I still have four more dinners to do mm -hmm. uh, this summer which and and all of them are um, yeah all of them are new except for Hell Hath No Fury I've done it before but I'm doing um, the Donner Party on July 3rd mm -hmm. and then I'm doing uh, Haunted Hotels. And then the evening with uh, Wyatt Earp and Tombstone, Spirits of Tombstone. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to those because it's something a little bit different. And then, you know, because fall, I do a lot of stuff that I've done before, but then try to introduce a few new things. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, a lot of people only get the chance to do some of this stuff in the fall. So I have to bring some of it back. Yeah. You know, I mean, as many times I've done the St. Louis Exorcism, people still want to see it. And, you know, we're not I'm not going to have any more until fall. So. Right. So you're gonna do the Donner party, and then people are gonna go eat hot dogs and yeah, well, my, and yeah, all my, that. well, my, my, I'm trying to figure out what we should serve for dinner that night. I mean, I mm. thought ribs would be good. Ribs you know? would be great. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't know for sure what dinner is gonna be that evening. Oh, but I, I, I like just that. keep telling everybody to bring an appetite, you know, because <laughs> you're gonna want to eat first instead of after. Right. So. Right. But yeah. But anyway, in the next couple of weeks, uh, uh, my new book will be out. The first in the Hell Hath No Fury series. The, yeah. The female, you know, ghosts and hauntings and spirits mm -hmm. and wicked and wronged women. And I'm looking forward to that one. Plus, there is a surprise. Yeah. That is coming in conjunction with that book. Uh -huh. That I'm not announcing. Yet. I I I I know a little bit. But I haven't you heard do. Any you do know a little about it. But I'm it's excited. something that is uh, going to be a special promotion 
that goes along with that book. And Hell yeah. so it's, it's been, uh, that's been fun. So it's exciting. But if you keep an eye on the website, um, keep an eye at, you know, AmericanHauntings.net, or you can keep an eye on the social media pages and things. And, yeah. you know, you can get, you know, find out about the tours, find out about autographed copies of the books, all that stuff. Mm. So. It's uh, Elise's mom asked me the other day, she was in my apartment and she said, she's like, why do you have this picture of Medusa hanging up right here? And I said, <laughs> there's, so, it's like, I like Medusa. I like mermaids, things like that. It's like, there's something about, uh, and sirens and things. There's something about a beautiful woman that might kill me. Yeah. That just <laughs> right. really, you know, right, attracts right, me. Right. So I love the Hell Hath No Fury series. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, that's yeah, it's be great. Um, it's been really exciting. And hopefully the, the Hell Hath No Fury series um, is going to be part of other things. Yeah. Um, so we're still kind of waiting to see on that. Right. So um, and when I when I know more about that, I'll talk more about it. Uh, right. But so when I said something special in conjunction with that book, um, it's not it's not that. Right. It's right. something else. Right. But, well, I'm excited for yes. that. And we'll talk more about that when we can. Yeah. But right now, let's talk about a bunch of nice things that other people have said about <laughs> us. Uh, let's get into some listener reviews. So. This first one is titled Cool Podcast, Nuff Said. It says, hey, gents, you guys are great. Been reading Mr. Taylor's books for, Mr. Taylor, right. um, books for years and decided to test this uh, one out as my second only podcast. It's great. I Patreon this baby and have been binging for a month. Thank you so much. Just wrapped the werewolf murders and now I, I've got a big list of bonus episodes. Great mix of crime, boogies, and other history. <laughs> Regarding The Dead Don't Die, uh, which is a movie that we talked <laughs> yeah. about a long time ago, um, I've not seen it yet, but I beg you not to dismiss Jim uh, Jarm. How do you say it? Jar Jarnish? Jarnish, Jarmush. I, uh, I can't remember. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm butchering it. Um, without checking out uh, Dead Man or Ghost Dog, just tossing that out there. I've also been told to listen to or watch, what is it, Coffee and cigarettes or something. I don't know. He did some other thing. Um, also, I'm, I'm probably the last one to know this, but Apple has a desktop app that um, us iPhone challenge folks can leave a review on. Anyhow, keep up the good work, and season one sounds fine to me. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. That was from... J-C-K-N-V-T. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for that review. This next one is titled Great Podcasts. Uh, I started listening to you guys during the pandemic. Great podcast. I really enjoy the history behind the ghost stories. The chemistry between you guys is awesome. I disagree, but thank you so much. That's from uh, Pups1501. Yeah, I really don't like him. So you know, it's... And this last one is titled Great Podcast. It's that I've listened to a few of the more recent episodes and I was immediately hooked. This podcast features a great orator that really conveys his knowledge and passion for the subject matter. It also features a millennial that I do not want to completely throttle. <laughs> I'm nearly done with the uh, Killed in Their Bed series and have been, uh, it's been eye-opening for me as I live an hour from Velisca and I've heard all about who did it clearly incorrectly. Your story about the psychic being so spot on about everything but the murder weapon makes me wonder if there was a slaughterhouse near the Payola murder site, or however you pronounce that, I know it's a whole thing. Um, yeah, since it was it was thing. the only one that the murder weapon was not found. Food for thought. Keep up the outstanding work, both of you. I'm a true fan. Thank you both. That's from Lawson, Missouri. Um, thank you. I'm so glad that you don't want to throttle me. I know <laughs> that I, I sometimes try to be a little um, irritating, annoying, um, and that's just kind of my role, but I, I'm glad that you see where I'm coming from. Um, thank you so much for the reviews. Again, those really help people find our podcast. I also had about 10 reviews sent to me uh, yeah? offline that were not posted, uh, just telling me how much they loved my Orson Welles commercials, just so you know. Yeah, so. I believe that this happened. This is a real thing <laughs> that people... Yeah, it was this guy. That did, yeah. There was this guy, nasty guy, but he's nice to me. Um, so it's, uh, you know... <laughs> these guys come to me, tears in their eyes. Um, <laughs> yeah, all right. exactly. Are you ready? Okay, you ready for this sure. subject matter? Yep. So this yep. is one people people have been asking for. I would say it's 
this and the Black Dahlia are probably tied for things that people immediately, when I say we're doing a Hollywood season, people have asked, are you doing Charles Manson? Yeah. Um, And we... I, we were talking about it a little bit before, and you're like, I couldn't justify doing this two episodes. No. One, because there's not enough material, but two, well, it's you not even hate, that. You hate this, oh, man. I do, but there's enough material if well, I had sh- wanted to wanted spend to. the time on it, which I did not. Um, mostly just because, I mean, people have done it and have done it more in more in depth than I ever planned on doing it. Yeah. Um, so I just didn't see the point in doing two episodes on it. Um, secondly, you're right. I do. I I hate. Manson and everything about Manson, his followers. Uh, I hope the few that are still alive rot in jail forever and never get out. Yeah. Um, I have nothing good to say about any of them. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, I just don't. It's not, I it's mean, not it's just, cute or edgy. It's, no, I don't, cool. no, I don't, I yeah. don't, I don't get it. I don't understand the, the fascination that people have to turn him into this cult figure. There's a handful of people that, while interesting, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. I mean, interesting to write about, I don't understand the idolizing of people like Manson or Ed Gein or Jeffrey Dahmer or... Um, Does this mean you hate my Ed Gein shirt that yeah. I got in New Orleans? <laughs> well, I mean, it's not... I mean, I get it. I mean, I get it. It's, you know, if it's funny or whatever, but it's not, it's not me. It's just not my thing. Sure. I, I, I don't, you know, I mean, this is what I do day in and day out it's my real job yeah so dealing with this kind of stuff some of it is just so beyond you know beyond parody i guess i just don't find i just i just can't figure it out i i don't know why i just don't feel i just don't get it well so so a question i would ask you so um when i talk to people about this stuff about true crime and things they always they always who's your favorite serial killer and i would say i don't have a favorite they're all pieces of shit but there's something that intrigued me. Interesting. Sure. Yeah. But, yeah, but yeah. I also, but, but what I wanted to ask you is, yeah, some of them are more intriguing than others, but also I don't find Manson that interesting no, or intriguing. I really don't either. He was a two bit con artist and a grifter who got, you know, who got a bunch of kids during a time period when it was easy to pick up strays yeah. and bend them to your will. I mean, it was, that's, it was the sixties, man. Right. <laughs> you know, in California, so, in yeah. California. So, I mean, we talked about all that. That's why I thought it was good to go from the cult episodes right into this. You know, we had a lot of discussions during those episodes about the way that people get twisted around by cults and things. And really he was just a, a you know, a manipulator. Yeah. I mean, he, he used these kids who, you know, were separated from their families. I mean, it, it's just classic cult stuff cult stuff yeah it is it's just classic behavior for someone who you know does damage to people and ruins lives which yeah. is exactly what he did i mean obviously these his followers who committed these murders were you know it's not like you just suddenly one day decide to go out and kill somebody for no reason and you were an upstanding member of the community before that right. you've got so you got to screw loose somewhere sure. you know even if it's not even if it stays hidden your entire life. There are probably warning signs. Yes, right. And so he, but he could find the ones that, that, you know, he, he picked and chose out of the many, the 50 followers he had, Mm -hmm. he picks out a handful because he knew they were fucked up. That's the only, so that's why he used it. Yeah. Those people skills. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, he, he certainly had them. I mean, he learned them all in prison from Dale Carnegie Carnegie. pimps and Scientology and you know, all this stuff. You know, I mean, this is where he picked up all the ways to do this stuff to people. And I just, yeah, I just, I, I despise him. I, 
there's not, you know, I, I've, I've seen all the documentaries, I've seen the movies, you know, I don't find anything amusing about him. He's a fucking idiot. And, you know, I, he, it was all show. You know, you see those interviews with him acting crazy and, you know, talking in gibberish and stuff. It's like, dude, you know, no one cares anymore. You're, I mean, you're just trying to keep yourself relevant. And right. You're not. Right. Um, but he apparently is to, to some people. Yeah. I, I just don't get it. Well, he, he's a terrible man. I'm glad he's dead. Um, died in yeah. 2017 at the age of 83. Still recognizable to all of us. He was born Charles Maddox in Cincinnati in 1834. To a no, 1934. Oh, geez. <laughs> that, that would have made him really old. I really just put, I just, that's just negligence. Um, to a 16-year-old single mother. Sorry. Uh, is, no, 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 that's okay. She, just thought it was funny. It, it's hilarious. Um, his mother's a drinker and she once sold him for a pitcher of beer which you know I, I get get rid of this kid um, but his, his mom really didn't want him so he's in and out of reform schools um, this kind of reminded me a little bit of the story um, of like Carl Panzram sort of thing just sure. like being yeah, tossed yeah, yeah. into these schools yeah. and that and, make them worse right and I get it and, you I'm not, know what I'm not I get it. and, and no it. and that's the and then that's where I you know I said all these things and then I said you know but let's not start start feeling sorry for him sure. because right, he right. is a monster of his own making yep I mean he didn't have to turn out the way that he did. Yes, yeah. he had a lousy family and a lousy mother and he, but I mean, you don't end up in reform school or, you know, into a reformatory just because you're, you know, misunderstood. I mean, sure. come on, you know, I mean, there are, there are millions of people who get out of much worse situations than he's in mm -hmm. and become productive and, you know, great members of society. I mean, I understand that it did, I'm sure it messed him up, but I don't know. You're never going to, I'm never going to feel so, I'm just never going to feel sorry for him. I'm no, just no, no, not, no, I get it. You know? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's almost like, um, I think there's a lot of people out there that are capable of terrible things. And if a lot of them don't ever see that through, but if, if the circumstances end up lining up correctly, like with him, it just kind of makes them worse and exacerbates them. And then you get a terrible person. So yeah. psychiatrists and social workers uh, found Manson to be intelligent, but labeled him, quote, aggressively antisocial. <laughs> yeah. At 20, he moves back in with his mother um, and he marries Rosalie Jean Willis, a 17 year old waitress. Um, I saw, I looked up some pics of them and that was the first time I'd ever seen him looking like a normal. Oh, normal. It looks completely normal. Yeah, There's that wedding, that wedding photograph yes, of yeah. them cutting the wedding cake and it's they look completely normal so normal you know you never would have expected well you wouldn't have thought of what was in his past already and you certainly wouldn't predict what was coming you right know? yeah so he likes even in that relationship like in that normal looking you know thing he, he's stealing cars yep. uh, moves his pregnant wife to la gets caught uh, but he only receives probation but then fails to show up for a yeah. hearing he's arrested again how it just come yeah. on, dude? Like, oh, I know. That's the only one thing job. you had to do. Right? In one job, yeah. Sentenced yeah. to three years at Terminal Island in San Pe uh, Pedro. That sounds like a terrible name. Uh, yeah, Terminal Island. Yeah, I'm sure it's a lovely spot. It sounds, sounds a garden spot. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, his wife divorces him while he's in prison, um, and it's a Terminal Island. You said that things began to change for Manson, so he began taking classes. Well, you know, yeah. the, the, the the funny thing about that Hit is me. that you know, two weeks before his parole hearing, he tries to escape it's because funny. he had no interest in leaving. Oh, I mean, Manson oh. thrived in prison huh. uh, because he had a captive audience. Uh -huh. Okay, And so, I mean, and, and it was all structured and it was all, I mean, you know, those, it's like, um, okay, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. When Brooke get, Brooks gets paroled. Right. He can't make it on the outside. Yeah. He's been in prison forever. Mm. This guy has spent already at this point, a good part of his life yeah. has been in prison. And, and so a narcissist, yeah, he, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to get out of prison, Okay, you know, until he decides to, you know, 
you know, he runs, he goes to the Dale Carnegie class and then he starts seeing ways that he can, you know, how, what he could do when he gets out and starts talking to the pimps and stuff, trying to get, you know, what do they do to, to keep their women working for him? You know, that's what he wanted to know. Those sure. are the things he learned. Right. Yeah. So. And, and so, yeah, that classic Dale Carnegie book, which is any, you know, like, 18 year old aspiring entrepreneurs, you know, like oh, yeah, they all read it. Yes. Think and grow rich. And, it, yes. Exactly. You know, I love how to win book. friends and influence people. Yes. I've never read any of that Seven stuff. Uh, Habits of Highly Effective People. I've yeah. Oh, all, yeah. I've, same, same stuff. I've read, yeah, so I've read all that shit, but I also didn't go then pimp out a 16 year old girl and con money <laughs> from uh, her wealthy parents. So he oh, gets, well, see, I did that, but didn't read the books. Oh, so shit. it's, yeah. So I did it the wrong way. Oh, we just Troy further incriminating himself on this. He gets busted again with a bad check, but one of the prostitutes essentially saves him by telling the court pretty much like, hey, we'll get married if he's freed. Was, right. Is that a thing? Right. Well, apparently it do? was. I, well, in Appealing 1959, judge, I, guess. I guess it worked. Okay. Um, that, you know, that it, that he could do that kind of thing. So fair yeah, enough. I don't know. So, Whatever works. So he takes yeah. her and another prostitute from California to New Mexico. He's arrested there in violation of the Mann Act. Right. Uh, which Taking is, women across state lines for the purpose of having sex with them. Yeah. I mean, it dates back to the early 1900s during the you know, the, the big um, push about white slavery, uh -huh. you know, and it was, it's essentially sex trafficking, right? 1900s version of it, early okay. 1900s. And so the Mann Act was created to try and stop this. To make it like and a it federal really, crime, I yeah, guess? Yeah, it really or? wasn't very effective. Um, they used it mostly to go after um, people that were targeted, like Jack Johnson, the boxer, not the surfer, the boxer. And not the uh, recording his, artist? No, no, he took his... Um, took his uh, then wife or fiance, I can't remember what she was, um, across state lines, but she was white. And mm -hmm. um, so they went after him for the Man Act. Was and she underage like, or something? No, no, no. But it was, uh, so it, yeah, they did it to Chuck Berry too. So well, but hey, Chuck he, Berry's he, a he's also a piece of, of shit. crap. So. Yeah, and I know we're in St. Louis. Fuck Chuck Berry. Yeah, like, he's I'm, not good. Well, you know my story. My I, Chuck do, Berry I do, story. I yes, do, I do. So not a fan. Anyway, yeah, don't. Okay, whatever. Anyway, doing creepy stuff. Yeah, don't do don't, that. don't go across state lines. Well, so. just don't do it. But yeah, well, don't do it at all. But, but you know, yes. uh, But there's your piece yeah. of criminal. Yeah, we're not lawyers, but um, <laughs> right. Anyway, right. right. So, don't don't follow us for legal advice, just in case. So he's, he's arrested there for that. He goes to Texas, where he's arrested again. Yeah. Sent back to California, order yeah. to serve the original ten terrible, years. Terrible, terrible criminal. Just an idiot. So. Um, yeah, sent to McNeil Island in Washington. Taught to play guitar by Alvin Creepy Carpus. Yeah, from the Barker Gang. Is, is okay what's the barker is that a thing um, i should know yeah it was a they were a desperate desperados I, I was gonna say depression era group of bank robbers and kidnappers oh, um, they operated around the, the same time as like dillinger okay. bonnie and clyde and all that uh but the barkers uh were mostly known for kidnapping that became a big thing in the early years of the depression mm -hmm. they were kidnapping like bankers and beer barons and things like that and holding them for ransom sure. and then using the money but uh, alvin carpus was uh, one of the leaders of the gang and you know legend has it that ma barker was the mother of the the barker boys and was planning the robberies that's that's bullshit that is that is made up. Okay. Um, that is made up. Oh boy, um, hit a hot button issue. You did. Troy. You did because that's that's all uh, the FBI director um, Hoover. That Hoover. was a Hoover made all that up. Um, and so you know, I mean, 
we at some point maybe we'll do some episodes on that. We'll we'll work a way in to do some you know yeah. depression era gangster stuff, Pretty Boy Floyd and right. you know and Babyface Nelson and all that stuff and Dillinger, of course, who's you know I I'm, I'm sitting here telling everybody I don't Not understand to idolize. I don't understand <laughs> why people idolize Charles Manson and I'm you know like the biggest fan of John Dillinger probably ever. You do you love know. that guy. I do. I just, uh, he just had such style. I was, I I was looking it's around to story. see if I found like a shrine to Dillinger. No, in your I do have his, you know, a death mask of the man who was killed in his place. And I do have an original newspaper from when he's, you know, that I'm uh -huh. reframed. So, Inter okay. We will dive into your psyche uh, yeah. and yes. stuff about this. Yes. Uh, anyway, later. All right. Let's, yeah, let's, let's keep going. Anyway, um, yeah. And that's who game. Alvin, that's who, uh, Alvin Carver's story. Right, so Char Charlie decides his purpose in life is now to be a rock star. Mm -hmm. Gets out of prison uh, in 1967 after spending more than half of his 32 years behind bars or in one institution or another. Now, one thing to also to remember here, yes. and I think I, and I don't know how far I got into it, but he gets out of prison in 1967 at the age of 32. Mm -hmm. Now, he is already 10 years older than most people who are involved in the counterculture, which he knows nothing about uh, because he's been in prison. Mm -hmm. So him getting out and showing up in San Francisco during the summer of love, um, this is just easy pickings for him. So it probably helped him. Right. Like, oh well, yeah, yeah. Because he's older than everybody else. So he's a father figure to all these girls who run away from home or right, whatever. Right. And it makes it easy for him to, again, hmm. manipulate people. I'm about to be 32. That's yeah. interesting. Okay. But, no, uh, but the I wheels mean, are just turning. compared to the right. rest of the people around him, he was quite a bit older. Than yeah. The yeah. Rest. That makes sense. In like a weird daddy way. Uh -huh, oh God. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, okay. So yeah, he moves to San Francisco, stumbles into Summer of Love, like you talked about in Hate Ashbury. Continues to grow his influence over women and got into the fringe music scene. Um, his time in San Francisco is important because he began the early formation of what became known as the Family. So let's talk about the Family. Um, Manson moves in with Mary Brunner, assistant librarian at UC Berkeley. Before long, they're sharing her apartment with a dozen or more young women. Yeah. Well, and you know, that's another thing too, is if you find some photos of Mary, mm -hmm. she's not the most attractive. Mm -hmm. And that was what he did. He would find, you know, a little plainer, maybe overweight, and he would find them and choose them as targets build them all up, make them feel beautiful. And, you know, and he would seem like he's doing wonders for their self-confidence, but really what he's doing is just, again, manipulating them mm. into his harem, essentially. Sure. Um, and so he was able to talk a lot. And, you know, plus, I mean, we're talking about summer love and, you know, nobody was, you know, free love and, you know, nobody was too many hangups. Right. If you come to San Francisco and you're hanging out in Haight-Asbury, you probably don't have a lot of hangups. I would imagine. Uh, so it was easy, again, easy pickings for him. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that's what he was doing. And he, you know, started to build this group of people just a handful of men yeah not too many mostly young mostly women. yeah mostly young women and the men were had to be useful uh -huh. they had to be that he could use them for something because he really didn't want to share the women yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so i mean they had to be like you know somebody who could really scrounge food well because mm -hmm. that's where they got most of their food they dig through dumpsters and you know behind a grocery store right. and they'd find the day old bread and all that stuff that's how they were feeding everybody and, you know, you maybe you could work on cars, maybe you could do, you know, work on the bus that they had gotten together. Sure. And so you you couldn't just be a, a guy who was a hanger on. The women could be just hangers on, yeah. but not yeah, the right. guys. They had to be useful. That's why he had so few fewer men than women in 
the family. I mean, I get it. Uh, he and his group of young women followers mostly piled into an old hippie bus, um, a school bus, and headed for L.A. I think this is where you see probably the stereotypical hippie yeah. bus when you yeah. see anything Partridge from like family ex- ex- Partridge yeah. family, exactly. So his followers grow. Um, he has some hypnotic power over the girls, particularly in this group. And I, I capitalize this too because I want to know: are are they are they eighteen? Or are they not? Are they girls? Are they women? Um, what, there was a mixture. I think most of them were borderline. Okay, age wise, um, some of them were underage. But either way, you're still a child. Even well, if you're 18. right, right. Well, and you know, a lot of them were of age, but a lot of them were not. Uh, but yeah, it was different back then. I mean, it really was di- a little different because, sure. you know, most of these girls would run away from home and so parents didn't even know where they were. Yeah. And then, you know, when he'd find one that her parents did know where they were, he'd end up like stealing the parents' credit cards right. and running up all the money on them. And so, I mean, there's a lot of detail to what a scumbag this guy is, but, mm-hmm. you know, that I, you know, just wasn't going to get into all this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You so know. prosecutor even says he has an aura about him, a vibe. Um, these yeah. women are from all walks. Well, don't of get life. me started on Bugliosi either. So I don't. Okay. I don't have much good to say about him either. But. No. No. Okay. Yep. Uh, these women are from all walks of life. Uh, you said that. Oh boy, Lynette Squeaky from mm-hmm. Susie Sadie Atkins. Yeah, he gave them nicknames, the Squeaky and Sadie, and they all had nicknames. Patricia, Crenwinkle, Crenwinkle, Linda Casabi. Yes, became their, his favorites. Uh, Charles Tex Watson becomes his second in command. Uh, I wanted to know, and I'm going to ask you about this. I was going to ask you about this uh, regarding their little the, the farm that they go to, but uh, our Spawn's Ranch. But how um, how accurate is it in like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Like the portrayal, do you think of this stuff? I know I, it's I, not. I know it's not supposed to be right. But. It's it's a fairy tale. It's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. So it's not it's not meant to be completely accurate. But as far as what you see with them, like living at Spawn Ranch and mm-hmm. stuff, um, it's you know, it looks as far as I can tell, it looks pretty accurate. Yeah. You know, as far as the you know what the place looked like and how they were living and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, OK, you know. uh, Charles Tex Watson. I do becomes, love that movie. It's a great movie. It's so, <laughs> so long good. and it's amazing. It's so good. It's so good. I, I actually I've been wanting to watch it again. Um, that is now this is kind of like reignited. Yeah, my, it's yeah, it is. It. it does. It made me want to watch it again. too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that was the last movie I saw at the Tivoli before oh, it, really? they finally yeah, called it quits, which was unfortunate. But also the Tivoli is a very uncomfortable theater for a three hour long movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Charles Tex Watson becomes a second in command. This from my understanding just seems like you get who's the most psycho person in your group yeah who'll do anything you tell them to do yes and yet put them in in at the number two spot uh then dennis wilson of the beach boys picks up two hitchhiking manson girls eventually manson like i guess what does he break into his house with a bunch of people well he just shows up there because i mean it was you know it was a hippie culture and you know it's just a different uh it was a different feel i mean you know manson was and it wasn't just dennis wilson mm. i mean he was in and out of everywhere in laurel canyon and at the time laurel canyon was like where all of the music stuff was happening okay the birds you know crosby stills and nash and um joni mitchell frank zappa i mean he used to hang out at zappa's house he had this log cabin and stuff i mean it's um that's a really fascinating there's some good documentaries on lower can there's some really great books yeah um that i really enjoyed um i get into that a lot in my um the dance the song of dance and death oh book, right, the right music right. book that i did but and so i really i really like that 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 era but manson was was in the middle of all of that stuff hanging around all these musicians and stuff trying to get in with these people 
And for whatever reason, Dennis Wilson just sort of got taken in by him. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it any better yeah. than that. I think Dennis was at that point, you know, pretty messed up most of the time anyway. Oh, yeah. You know, you said and, he was high all yeah, the time. Yeah, he was high all the time. And and so I think that that's how it started. You know, he, he shows up, he's got these girls in his house and Manson's there and, you know, and telling, you know, just acting like he worshiping him like a guy. Yeah, these girls are all, shit. you know, enthusiastic free love, as I mentioned in the, uh -huh. the, and so I think that, you know, but then when they, you know, don't leave his house, they won't get out and crash wreck one and of shit. his cars. And then, you know, a bunch of his, you know, he and his friends end up with gonorrhea and stuff. I mean, they're starting yeah. to think that maybe this isn't a good idea. Yeah. Um, but it was, but it was Dennis who paid for Manson's original, you know, studio, studio. time and everything. You and, know? and, and you, and we heard that, that, terrible song ceased to exist <laughs> yeah, um i was actually i was thinking about this while i was writing this so i've i i, I play music a lot um i've been in recording studios dozens of times i think i have a pretty i, I can objectively say what i think is good or not even if i don't like it this is not good no, it's not good it seems like the right hand doesn't know what the left's doing yeah and there's some interesting little guitar pieces in the background but it kind of seems like more like an idea of a song rather yeah. than a real yeah. song yeah and yeah it was pretty garbage well it, it was and that's the thing and then you know dennis took one of it took one the lyrics from one of his songs and changed it up right and that's what really kind of pissed him off to never learn not to yeah. love which also i don't like that song i don't like either. that song I so i mean yo i i know it's not a beach boys song that anyone remembers mm -hmm. i mean it's ter it's a bad song it's not it's good. just a bad song and it's not good i don't think that i don't think the rest of the beach boys were too thrilled with it either uh, you know but i mean dennis was one of the founders and you're kind of hard to you know at that point yeah, yeah so i don't know anyway but that's that's what made him mad at dennis and then once he was mad and dennis started to get really nervous which understandably with the note um, shit yeah the bullet. yeah and you know he sent his manager to kick everybody out because he didn't want any part oh of really it. yeah he didn't want any part of it huh, but man. then he left behind a bullet with a note i know. know where your children are yeah. so that, between oh. between dennis and terry melcher who was you know supposed to produce Manson's big album, which uh -huh. of course is never going to happen. Bring about the apocalypse. Yeah, Terry Melcher gets mixed in with Manson too, and that's you know that's what eventually leads to, um, you know, the murders mm -hmm. is because he thinks he's going to go after Terry Melcher, and you know it was all about revenge. Just it, an it idiot. Is, and and then given this apocalyptic vision, which was probably bullshit made yep. up by between Manson and Bugliosi then just added on to it to give him an excuse. Yeah. Um, but I, I really think that most of it had to do with the fact that he was after Terry Melcher, who, by the way, uh, is uh, Doris Day's son. The oh, yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, so, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably know that by now, but it is kind of interesting. No, so. I mean, I had no idea until I was reading your your monologue stuff, but um, spawn, okay, sponsor answer. We talked a lot about that, so I'm not going to go into sure. too much. Um, but they said they they established that, but then they also established an alternative location in Death Valley. That yeah. one I didn't in I the didn't middle know of nowhere, um, really deep off off the grid, out in Death Valley, and that was where they were going to hide out when you know. Wait, is that the, uh, is that the cave happened. or whatever? Or? Well, there's a story about the cave and stuff, but it is supposed to be near Devil's Hole Cave. Devil's that's, Hole, that's what where a they, weird name. Yeah, that's where they, uh, you know, established this, like, really, really remote, uh, primitive spot that, you know, nobody wanted to get stuck at. But, sure. of course, 
Charlie told them to go. They went, you know. Who so. Was, so do you know who, who was running that location? Do you, do you know? I'm or, sure. I, I You know what? I'm sure that I've got it in the details somewhere. Sure. And I didn't. I just didn't know, know if I there was, was another an overview. Weird number no, two I don't think there was. I think it was, you know, he would leave one of those girls in charge, squeaky oh, okay. or somebody okay. in charge so that, you know, something would be handled or tax or sure. whoever, you know. So And so just to clarify, so Manson's uh, apocalyptic, apocalyptic vision would come through songs, specifically the Beatles, the White Album. Um, so I've heard this term a thousand times, but I just want to clarify. Helter Skelter is his term from the Beatles for the apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, it's right. It's a song. It's a song on the White Album. Right. We've heard the song. Yes. And um, it's a song on the White Album. And he believed there was a message in it that mm -hmm. meant that, well, okay. The story <sighs> is, is that he believed there was a message in it that was, you know, going to be that there was going to be a race war between black and whites. Mm -hmm. And that he, the reason they committed the murders, so they claimed, is that. Um, <laughs> because the, the black people who would kill all the whites but were too dumb to Govern manage themselves, themselves yeah. so they ne would need Charlie Manson and the family to do it for uh, them. As one does. Right. So that was that's supposed to be, and so they were going to hide it out at Devil's Hole Cave in Death Valley, and then once the, you know, the war was over, then they would emerge from the desert and change the world. Right. And so to, in order to do this, he wanted to write his own mm -hmm. album, you know, because just because the message came to him from the Beatles, no one else would understand the message, but they would understand his message in his world changing album, which, of course, was never made. I wonder. God. I wish so. there were recordings of that. Or rough <sighs> well, there, cuts. yeah, there had to have been at some point because, you know, Melcher and that. Uh, yeah, and and that engineer came out and rolled tape on him. But oh, they did roll. Yeah, tape? and okay. I think I think it exists. Somewhere. I mean, I'm pretty sure that I saw something from a documentary that had some of that oh, material in it. But it's insufferable. Yeah, it's I I'm not 90 I'm not 100% sure, but yeah. I'm I'm pretty sure I did see some of it. If that. you know what or documentary it. Yeah, yeah. It might have some of this, let us know, you know, tweet at us, uh, hit yeah. us up on Instagram or something because I would I would hate to love to listen to some yeah. of that garbage. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh boy. Okay. So like you said, yeah, the family's plan is to create an album with songs that would trigger predicted chaos. One of the things, okay, so yeah, eventually, it was something I wanted to clarify too. So Manson shoots this drug dealer that got ripped off. Yes. Um, did the drug dealer die, or was that was it? The news spun it. No, he did die, he but he did. was not a Black Panther. Right. Okay. That, that was so the that difference. Was a spin. So, yeah. so is that the only person Manson killed? No, there are, there are others. Okay. Um, now there's the only there, one I ever heard of. There's uh, Shorty Shea who worked at. Uh, the Spawn Ranch, who w kept trying to get George Spawn to get rid of Manson, and Shorty disappeared, uh -huh. and they're pretty sure Manson killed him. He, and they you were, think Manson actually did yeah, it, not like no, Tex or I think Manson did it. And, okay. and there are probably others. Um, I've seen a list of maybes, but nobody knows for sure. sure. You know, I mean, you, it's it's pretty impressive that they were able to put him away the way that they did for killing. The without tape, blood yeah, on the, his hands, actually. you know, Sharon and the others and the LaBiancas who, and he didn't actually really even do the murders, sure. but he did manipulate his right. followers into doing it. And that's, that's pretty impressive for the time period that, sure. that, that they were able to pull that off. Yeah. I'm just not a big fan of Bugliosi. I, I, I just think that he, man, he manipulated a lot of things mm -hmm. and uh, plus he 
really arrogant in all of his interviews and stuff, and he was pretty insufferable. But um, there were other people involved, and I mean, and it's complicated. I mean, the trial gets complicated. Um, One of you know, one of Manson's attorneys disappears and found dead later, and all kinds of stuff. There was a lot of stuff going on, Mm -hmm. but it's um, it's an interesting story, definitely an interesting story. Yeah, but. You know, I've read a couple of books. There was one that came out a year or two ago called Chaos, and it was, uh, this guy had Manson mixed in with the CIA drug experiments and all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, Interesting book, but, yeah. you know, you don't finish it and go, oh, yeah, well, that sounds right. absolutely true. But Just because you take acid doesn't mean the yeah, CIA gave it to yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> right. I found another one um, called Creepy Crawling that came out a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. about two years ago. That one was much better much better it was a little different it wasn't just kind of your standard sure thing it was um a little different so i've done a lot of reading on it um i just i don't want to read or hear anything from people who who idolize yeah or fetishize manson i just don't want to hear i'm confused so if so he kills this guy and then sees on the news oh you know you killed a black panther yeah and and he he panics but okay if you wanted to incite a race riot isn't that right that would be a a good way to do it i would think so he's just yeah ah, yeah it's just i know you know bizarre stuff he's terrible um okay so basically they they uh, they they hold this guy hostage, uh, Gary Hinman. Gary Hinman, yeah, a couple days, and yeah. then now this is after they visited the the Sharon Tate's house. Oh, right, sorry, looking yeah. for Terry Melcher. Yeah, they, and he's yeah. not there. And they and weird so her out. He has been there already. So, and he knew he knew Terry didn't live there. Yeah. at this point. Yeah. So what the hell? Yeah. So just yeah, I violence. just think it was easy. You know, made an easy target. I think he saw it for what it was and thought, well, this. You know, this could be done. Right. And I don't think he had any idea who Sharon was. I know. I, I really don't. Thing. Yeah, I, I was don't wondering, really don't did he know that. it was going to be uh, a I don't big, think so. high profile? No, I think thing. it was more of the location. And um, I mean, it, it scared Terry Melcher to death. Mm-hmm. I mean, it scared everybody. Everybody started, all these Hollywood stars and people started carrying guns and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, even like big name, you know, like tough guys like Steve McQueen were completely freaked out by this because, yeah. you know, he was friends with them. And so he was, you know, everybody was kind of freaking out because, they didn't know what was going on. And the other thing we have to remember is we look back at this in hindsight and we look at the Tate and LaBianca murders. Well, at the time, no one had any idea they were even connected. Mm-hmm. Not right away. Right. I mean, it was months before they connected the cases. So, And we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. and it started with the scary Hinman thing. I mean, he had some money. Manson wanted it. Um, they, you know, they held him hostage trying to get him to give him the money. And, you know, and then he's, you know, you got Manson waving around a samurai sword and shit, just trying to, you know, to get Psycho. to scare him and get his attention. But after they killed him, then they tried to, you know, make it look like he'd been killed by black guys. Mm-hmm. And that was putting the political the piggy on the wall and the panther paw. And no, nobody got it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean the cops did got. arrest, you know, they did arrest Bobby Beausoleil, but... You know, because he had the knife and the wheel well of his car. He's well, it was a stolen morons. car, too. Yeah, right? real yeah. morons here. So yeah. you said they're not a yeah, master, a criminal but, master. You know, and then so they decide to commit another murder and try to make it as look as close as possible to Gary Hinman so that that way they can get Bobby out of jail because they, well, they say, oh, well, see, it was the same people. So yeah. it couldn't have been me. It wasn't me. Even though I had the, I'm driving his car and I've got a knife in the wheel well that it matches his blood. Yeah, right? Come on. So, well, Let's talk about these. The whole reason we're talking about Manson in the first place—these infamous murders. So 
Just before midnight on August 8th, four members of the family, Tex, uh, Susan, Patricia, and Linda, dressed in black, were sent with instructions from Manson to um, that house where Melcher used to live and to, quote, destroy everyone as gruesome as you can. They were told to leave something witchy, something dramatic and awful that would shock the rich uh, people in their Hollywood mansions. Who would think that there were black people on the rampage. That was supposed to be the idea. And it would look like Gary Hinman's murder. Right, right. Okay, so... Um, Sharon Tate's in the house, who's eight months pregnant. Uh, Wojciech Frikowski. Frikowski. Coffee heiress Abigail Folger and Jay Sebring are also there. Uh, While Linda stands guard, essentially the other people are stabbed 102 times in total, which is ridiculous. Um, It's just all of it's just horrific. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean, all the stuff with Sharon. I mean, that's, I mean, don't get me wrong. All of them were... I don't know the people. I don't know much about the other people I know. I mean, I know who they are. I know who, especially Jay. Yeah. I mean, he was he was really well known in Hollywood, maybe not outside Hollywood. Was he the but, hair? Yeah, he was a hairdresser. Hair and he was like the guy who, you know, invented like, um, I think he cut Mia Farrow's hair. Maggie, do you know? Jay Sebring, did he cut Mia Farrow's hair for Rosemary's Baby? Or was that Vidal Sassoon, I guess? Okay. Uh, we have a guest who used to be specializing once yes. Maggie is here. So Hi, Maggie. she used to work for uh, a cult uh, hair company. And so, yes, yeah, so we thought <laughs> she would know. But anyway, but Jay had done like a, it was do, did everybody's hair, right. all the big stars. So he was a big deal. But Sharon was, you know, had only done a few movies, but was really, had become really well known just because people really liked her. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a genuinely nice person that people really admired and she was funny and was not, you know, and was married to Roman Polanski, which now is, you know, but that's back then, problematic. Back then, back then, then he was seen as a, as a genius. He'd made Rosemary's baby and he was getting ready to make Chinatown. Yeah. You know, I mean, Polanski was, and was, you know, whatever problems he may have had was just utterly, I, I'm telling you, none of the stuff that happened with Polanski in the future mm-hmm. would have happened if Sharon had not died. That is really? my, that's what I believe. I believe that, I mean, we'll, we'll never know if their marriage would have lasted. I mean, it's a Hollywood marriage, but on yeah. the other hand, I think his life would have been completely different if Sharon had not been murdered. I really do. Um, I think he was uh, just destroyed by it. Yeah. I really, I really think that. Yeah. Well, he can be destroyed by it, but he didn't need to destroy other people. Well, I know. And then, yeah, I mean, things didn't turn get, bad. But, I mean, we, we, we focus on Polanski, you know, in 1969. Yeah, It's right, a whole right, different right. kind of thing. Before I mean, he's in London making sideways. a movie. Yeah. And, you know, Sharon is there, and she's eight months pregnant. And they, you know, they tie her up. They, they the throw neck, the right? rope yeah, yeah. around the rafters and stabbed her and stabbed her and stabbed her. And she begged, begged, begged them to let her live just long enough to have her baby and then they could kill her. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's as bad as it gets, as, Yeah. you know, and then, you know, they, you know, try to cut the baby out of her and Sadie Atkins talks about, you know, tasting her blood. And it's like, yeah, these people, I mean, seriously, they're, I, I wish, I, I understand the well, end. She, Atkins is dead now, right? She's, yeah, she's, she's the died. one that passed away. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I understand the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. After you, once you know the story, yeah. and then you see the crime in, scene in the photo. movie, in the movie, Tarantino gets revenge for all of us right. against these people. Yeah, it's, you know? it's, it's a beautiful, it horrific is. thing. Yes, and so, you know, you're almost like, 
uh, you know, I w- well, that's Again. the thing. If only, if you know, only. if if only, you know, one thing had happened different. Yep. If only, you know, Brad Pitt had been living in the next house or staying with his buddy in the next house. Mm. Things might have been different. And had know? a can of dog food and a head full of acid. <laughs> yes. That's, that's, a, that's a great and film. A, and Leo had a flamethrower. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, exactly. it would have been perfect. I, uh, and I looked at the crime scene photos because that's what yeah. I do. Oh, God, weirdo. they're horrible. And yeah. They're, they're horrible. They're, they're absolutely horrible. They're, yeah, they're absolutely terrible. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I don't need to rehash No, we don't. We're, we're not going to rehash There's it. a shit ton of stags. Yeah, I mean, lo- they just were slaughtered. You know, they, they yep. chased... They chased Abigail out across the lawn and stabbed her like, you know, 28 times. Uh, Wojciech was stabbed 51 times. Sharon was stabbed 16 times. Yeah. I mean, it's just unreal. So then they decide to write pig on the door in Sharon's blood, and that's all they do. Yeah. And they run for it. to be connected. Something yeah. Like, yeah. Why, okay, why not do another panther pop? I, I don't know. Well, because because they're talking, idiots. Yeah, they're idiots. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about some geniuses here. God. You know, so then the next night, Manson's pissed yes. because it doesn't go the way you wanted. So La he's going to take him out to someplace else. Okay. And, how did? How, okay. Who, interestingly, he knew somebody who lived in that neighborhood. Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't. I didn't get into all that. I was just kind of recounting what happened. But he actually knew somebody. He they a bunch of the family had been to a party of a guy they knew who lived like two doors down or something from, from La the Bianca? La Bianca's house. And um, I don't know exactly how he decided on that particular house yeah. but um they knew it they knew the neighborhood they knew the house and so that's what they decided to do and went there and you know slaughtered Lino and Rosemary I mean yeah. who you know hadn't done anything to anybody but they wanted to make sure that you know the word or that the point got across this time by mm-hmm. painting war uh well, carving it into Lino's abdomen where they yeah. left a big carving fork stuck into his stomach right and then he wanted to be really clear about the uprising so after they had killed them they wrote rise and death to pigs and then of course misspelled helter skelter <laughs> <Fucking idiots. laughs> they, they'd heard charlie say it but had no idea how to spell it so yeah <laughs> idiots oh, God, no uh, kidding. geez okay so well you just Covered a lot of ground there. So let's talk about the trials here. Uh, it took investigators some time to connect to the two murders because, like you said, they're fucking cooperate. stupid. We have, we have discussed this. We have discussed this problem through this entire season of the podcast. Every time there's been a criminal case, no one cooperates with anyone. Right. You've got the LAPD and you've got the LA County Sheriffs, and they're each individually investigating crimes, or you've got two different precincts who don't cooperate with each other and have no idea for months that these two are connected. You had a couple of guys, a couple of detectives who thought something seemed funky here and nobody listened to them. And so off it goes, everybody doing their own thing until finally they get it all put together and then arrest the Manson family, but not for murder, for stolen dune buggies, you know? And it's like, oh, come on, man. You know, if it hadn't have been for somebody in jail who decided to talk or idiot. just start, yeah, Susan Atkins started bragging about murdering her people. big fucking mouth. Oh, an idiot. So stupid. Because people are dumb. I know. And, well, and also, we've talked about this in other seasons, too, but that problem has not been fixed. Like, a lot of, a lot of you know, serial killers and, like, even, like, 9-11 kind of stuff, right? If people yeah. would talk to each other oh, and I know. not always be wanting credit for things, I know. maybe we could stop some it's, terrible things. It's better now than it was, but you still run into the same problem. Right. It's like, you know... Every movie that you see, 
where there's like murders or a serial killer and the FBI comes in to help. Yeah. And then every movie, they're mad. <laughs> and it's like, guys, come on. We've seen the movie. If you don't work together, this is never going to end. You right, know? right, right. So oh. the tri trials begin. Uh, evidence starts to pile up. Uh, trial begins in July 1970. Manson still has a hold on these girls. He said when he carves an X into his forehead, so do they. When he shaves his head, so do they. These women yeah. that are showing up to the trials mm -hmm. and stuff. Uh, none of them showed remorse. said, quote, following their arrest, Manson and his followers had briefly become counterculture celebrities. Right, right. Hippies being prosecuted right. by the man until right. their guilt became too much to ignore yeah. and then it just kills the summer of love yeah and, and it, it kind of moves that. you know and, and there are people who dispute that but i think that you yeah, know that i think that you know i, I don't know uh, joan didion is the one who w went around saying that the mansons had killed the 60s but honestly uh it was altamont that killed the 60s that was well okay if 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 this killed the 60s then altamont dug its grave okay. because it, it the, those two things combined within a few months of each other yeah yeah that was that was the end of the 60s man you just I gotta mean, make sure you gotta pay more attention to who you hire for security for your, <laughs> right, for your events right yeah we'll, we'll get into that in another uh, well we probably won't but if you don't know <laughs> what true. i'm talking about go look it up it's so. uh, yes um so okay you, this you asked a question Why are we fighting who's fighting what for i'm the Mick Jagger. That was pretty good. From the good. stage. That was, yeah. that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I think, what was it? Robin Williams said, he's like, I think there is a cure for death and it lives with inside Keith Richards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when the world yeah, ends. I think so too. When the world ends, it'll be two cockroaches and Keith, Keith Richards. Keith Richards. Yeah. Um, okay, so the question you asked, did Manson really believe the Beatles were speaking to him or was it merely a sensational idea cooked up by an ambitious prosecutor? <laughs> I think it's uh, a little of both. Yeah, right? Somewhere I mean, I, I, think that, I think that Manson... It did come up with all these things, but I don't think he really believed it. Yeah. I think he sold it to his followers. I think it was just, you know, it was a power trip for him. I just don't. I mean, this, this guy, this guy was always going to end up back in prison at some point. Of course. Yeah. So it might as well be big. Right. So, yeah, yeah. you know, and it, it did turn out to be big. Um, but why, you know, the thing and I didn't I didn't get into all this, but why? Why is it? It's like we talked about with like the Black Dahlia case and then all those other murders. Mm -hmm. Why the Black Dahlia case? Why? Why is it the one everyone remembers? It sticks out in pop This culture. is the same way. There's plenty. There was plenty of brutal violence that was taking place in L.A. in the late 60s. Lots of murders. I mean, I didn't do a whole separate episode on it or anything. I just figured we'd bring this up. Yeah. But why this one? Um because hmm. Manson, well, because he became a celebrity, I guess, you mm -hmm. know, with the trial. Yeah. Um, because he wasn't, we, we, again, in hindsight, we look back at this and we think, you know, here's this iconic true crime figure. Well, he certainly wasn't at the time. He was a short, little, shrimpy, dirty, no good hippie, you know, who yes. just was, yes, you know, his him. followers were, you know, they lived on our, uh, on an old ranch and were, eat, you know, eating out of dumpsters and What's glamorous about that? Right. Nothing. There isn't anything glamorous about this guy. But he made such a spectacle of himself at the trial that you had even President Nixon weighing in on the trial. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's not normal. Right. You know, you don't have the president weighing in on one trial that's going on uh, on the other side of the country. Yeah. Even if he was from California, you still don't see that. Um, and I guess, you know, Sharon Tate, I guess having her as a celebrity but you know again she was not a huge celebrity at the time yeah. she was b-list she was married to a director who'd had a hit film and was making some other stuff 
and was well known, but not that well known. Yeah. You know, and she'd only been in a few things. And so she wasn't a huge star at the time, but the has become, maybe and yeah, she's become one in hindsight. Yeah. You know, I mean, as we look back, you think, oh, well, Sharon Tate. But I mean, really, I mean, would we remember most, her if would if we not? would we even remember Valley of the Dolls? Sure. I mean, it was popular in the 60s, but it's super dated. I mean, the book was is horrifically dated and the, the movie itself is it's a time capsule of the 60s. So, yeah. I mean, I guess that kind of makes it cool. But aside from that, she did the fearless vampire killers with Polanski hmm. her director, her husband directing it. Yeah. So really, she hadn't done that much. She wasn't a huge star. But for whatever reason, you know, I guess a lot of things combined. Same way yeah. with the Black Dahlia, I guess. I, you would, know? Be, I would be interested to take a, like a real nerdy approach to this and, and map out like, you know, Manson, Black Dahlia and, and try to find the commonalities that yeah. it, it's probably a perfect storm of things like you're talking yeah, about, it has to be. but that, why these things stick out in our heads. Right. More than They're the ones we remember. There are more horrific crimes. There are people, you know, that did worse things. And, you know, I don't know, but, the, but there's something that sticks with these. And I'm curious as to, I'm curious what our listeners would think of, yeah. of what is the reason we remember right, these things. Right. Um, you know, tweet at me, hit me up on Instagram. We'll have some 3 a.m. conversation. Let's yeah. figure this out. Just, Let's get um, down to the bottom. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it happened, but somewhere in my lifetime, yeah. um, it, it, it happened. I mean, it just became this culture and maybe it's what Joan Didion said. It was, you know, it's the end of the sixties. Mm -hmm. It was a, time period of, you know, peace, love and happiness. And suddenly, yeah. you know, um, people became afraid of hippies where they weren't before. Right. You know, they just were, you know, maybe needed a bath, <laughs> yeah, or, you know, needed a bath and a haircut, you know, but um, now suddenly people are afraid of them. Now they might Stop kill picking you. up hitchhikers. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. It, you know, they, it, it turned and, you know, the people who were the easygoing free spirits, really resented this. Mm -hmm. I mean, at first, like you said, like I said, they, they thought they, well, you hear Manson's being, you know, to hit another hippie, man, he's being persecuted by the man. Right, right. Uh, but then suddenly they realized, man. well, wait a minute, he really did all these things. Yeah. And they resented the fact that he ruined everything for these people. Yeah. And that, that, that changed them. I mean, the hippie movement hung on for just a little while longer. And then by the mid seventies, we we're in a whole different mindset mm -hmm. the music was different everything changed yeah in the early 70s um you know our whole country changed because of this yeah and that's um i, I guess that's another reason that i really hate this guy yeah you know <laughs> and, I mean, and well and so many people died soon after you know uh janice joplin jimmy hendrix mm -hmm. you know i mean everything changed and i mean you can't blame jimmy hendrix on manson but right. still right. you know it was still all at the around the same time, and it, it just ruined. It ruined music. It 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 just it just fucked everything right, up. Yeah, you know, yeah. I just really I just always think about what would be different. You yeah. know, how would things be different? You know, I mean, you can go back and say how would things be different if you know JFK business hadn't been assassinated. Sure. But we watched the Stephen King thing; and it was bad. It so was we'll just bad. go with that. I love the book. And I the know. series is not good. Uh, it's all right, but I, the book's much better. But I love the book. Um, you know, but what if, what if this had never happened? Yeah. You know, I mean, like I said about Polanski, I think that would have been completely different, but who knows how music might've been different. Mm -hmm. Um, just 
popular culture in general. Yeah. So, I mean, we I guess we need the sequel Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Part 2. Part 2. So what happened next? Twice you know, Upon so, a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, the bums lost, Mr. Lebowski. That's what <laughs> yeah, I know. I think about I know. Okay, well let's uh, do something we haven't we haven't done in a little bit. Let's let's talk about some some ghosty things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this house. So ultimately, turns out to be a, a huge dick about the house that he owned where the wow. murders took yeah. place. Wow, yeah, was that guy a tool? Yeah, uh, um, yeah. He goes through a lot of legal things, you know, saying they kind of ruin the reputation. <laughs> sued Polanski. Yeah, sued. Yeah, Pol- it goes through just a bunch God. of gets like four and, grand. And at sent, the end of the sent them sent a bill to Sharon's family to for cleaning. I swear, what a. If, I mean, if, what an asshole. If, yeah. If I, I mean, that, I've that never my, heard anything like that. You if, know, I just feel like if that were my daughter and I got that bill for that, I'd just, I'd beat the brakes. Yeah. Well, he sent guy. him a, he sent, he sued him for $480,000, including 300,000 for embarrassment, humiliation, emotional and mental distress. Now mm. his, his distress, not Sharon's right, family, right, right, you right. know, because they don't matter. God, what a dick. Um, yeah. Nine Inch Nails frontman Trent Reznor eventually turns the, he, he moves into this yeah, house. Yeah, such bullshit. Oh, I didn't know what happened here. Yeah, yeah turns, right. Turns Trent. Living room well, yeah, into a recording know. studio, which he dubbed uh-huh. Pig. Have yeah. you been watching the news lately? Courtney Love just came after him no. with some serious allegations of sexual misconduct oh, with God. younger people. Her, in, then she went after Dave Grohl too, but that was about uh, Nirvana rights thing. Oh, but and God. again, allegations. And Courtney Love's not the best person I to be hate bringing Courtney anything. Love. She's yes, she's it not good murdered. Either. Kurt Cobain. Oh, oh no, oh, I didn't say boy. that out loud. Oh so. boy. That's just what they say. That's what they say. That's but also say. Trent Reznor, um, I do not like Nine Inch Nails. I never have. Oh, if, I like Nine Inch Nails. If someone can sing I me think he's a, a good fan. Nine Inch Nails song, I will give you a dollar. Okay, I have good ones. But I, I think it. he is a fantastic uh, composer for soundtracks, has become one. Okay, that, well that yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, I've never heard a good Nine Inch Nails song. I don't believe one exists. <laughs> yeah, so they if do. anybody wants to hit me up, let me know. Well, anyway, I mean, my point with this was, I mean, he was obviously lying. Oh, yeah, That he didn't know what the house yeah. was. And then he was so apologetic, but then took the door. He took the and door. And took it with him to New Orleans when they had the studio. It's gone now. That studio's oh, not there is it, I was going to say, yeah. that kind of like is, I've been, is morbid, I've been by like there, it. but it's not. Yeah, it, it was a funeral home. They turned it into studios, and then he put the door from Cielo Drive on the studio. But I, I kinda, he's not He's not down there anymore. I do kind of think that's pretty cool. Um, in like a really metal, morbid. Well, yeah, I I thought I I would do that. But my point is, is that I'm not going to go on national news and talk about how regretful I am that oh, I right. decided to yeah, make own a up to movie studio or a music studio and name it Pig where right. Sharon Tate was murdered. Right, yes. You know, that if you're going to do it, then do it, but don't apologize for it. And right. then keep right on with the whole theme. Exactly. So, so that house is torn down. Uh, the street address changed, all that. A new house is built nearby, then torn down. Another one's built. David Omen, uh, the yes. occupant, claimed to see an apparition of a man pointing to the driveway, which led to the murder site. And eventually he believes that this man might have been Jay Sebring. Yeah. Um, Omen really dove into the paranormal, had a ton of investigations. Still does. The house. Still is. Um, he claimed to uh, be more afraid of the living than the dead. Which like I get that. Talked about. Yeah. yeah. Have, have you been out to this site? No. I know we've talked talked about a little bit no okay. no i've been to benedict canyon but i couldn't you couldn't at the time get up to where the house was uh-huh though, and i'm sure they discourage a lot of that unless it's yeah. like a legit kind <laughs> yeah. of yeah yeah they're investigation not, open for you know just people to hang out on the property sure kind of like the people that own the amityville horror house you know, <laughs> just like go away like, just get out of here man <laughs> like the breaking bad house the amityville with the horrible pizza. with the pizzas yeah yeah that's, that's awesome it's like, well it's like, like stop throwing pizzas on my roof come on i know i, I don't blame him for that, i don't but, either yeah, I, especially I'd he did it one he did it one take 
Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, how does yeah, that work? I know. Uh, one night during the seance, a group of people were gathered in the living room, and Oman literally heard Sharon whisper, I just want you to know we're here. That's all I got. Yeah. That's a, it's, it's a heavy um, story, man. It is a heavy story. Um, and, you know, I don't I'll, like it. I'll apologize to anybody who wanted it to be longer um, than it was, but I just didn't feel like it needed to be. No. Um, I, I, I thought everything I had to say about Manson, I could get into one episode. Yep. Actually, I could probably write it on the back of a matchbook. I would have been pissed point, if you made this two episodes. Yeah. Like, well, why? and I was going to, I was going to split the murders in half and, you know, and then the, the follow up in the second episode, but I just fuck Manson. Yeah. I just, I don't, I just didn't want to spend any more time on him than I thought was necessary. And I do not plan on mentioning him again in the rest of the season or mm-hmm. act probably ever on this podcast again, unless someone writes into something that we discuss. Yeah. Um, because I'm, I'm done with him. Yeah. So. You know, I know we're being very brave right now, but we are um, anti Manson. <laughs> yeah, uh, just w- want to get that on the record. If yeah. you're pro Manson, yeah, yeah, write in and I just won't read your email. <laughs> um, okay. I wanted to give a quick uh, shout out to our new Patreon sub- uh, subscriber. So I wanted to say thank you for supporting the show to Connor, Nick, Marlies, and CSRT. Artistic Design Snyder. That's a uh, hell of a name. But yeah, thank you very much for supporting the show on Patreon. It really helps us continue to do what we do. You can check that out at uh, patreon.com slash American Hauntings. What, what are we doing? That really, was an accident. Again, no, already? That was, an, that was really was You're an accident. You're just prepping your bullshit. I was. For, mm, okay. Oh my God, it just keeps playing. Magic. Stop. I run a tight ship, a professional <laughs> show. <laughs> It is now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This email comes to us from Emily. It's titled, Hey, Troy and Cody. Hello. Um, the message says, I have finally caught up after starting with season one sometime in the fall or winter of last year. I'm a completionist, so yes, I started with season one. While the sound well, wasn't... Well, we're sorry. While the sound wasn't great, uh, the stories... Oh, boy. The stories were, and they kept me coming back for more. Sorry, I can't see. It's so it's so small. Um, you should I, put your glasses on. I know. Um, I I also uh, love the movie discussion <laughs> episodes because I love movies and wouldn't mind more of those, even if they're not about horror movies. No, we'll have them. But oh, they oh. won't be about anything but horror movies. That's so. true. Um, just follow yeah, follow me on Twitter Instagram if you want other uh, movie opinions. But I, I'm fr- I just don't put reviews because I'm saving that. You know that, yeah. But what's it called? Letterbox. Letterbox thing for the horror films that I watch throughout the year. Right, it's a lot easier to save that way. And I like it. Anything to help you be more organized. Um, I'm here for it. <laughs> so it says, "I'm from Oregon, uh, so I get a little smile on my face whenever you mention it." And I hope one day you'll do a season on it. Also, have you on thought- where Oregon? Do we ever mention Oregon? I mean, we have Pacific have we? Northwest oh, and stuff, okay. and well, cool. yeah, we make Kirk Cobain jokes all remember. the time. I just couldn't remember. Oh yeah, I'm sure we've talked about it, but uh, yeah, I hope one day you do a season on. Hey, okay. Kirk Cobain jokes, Oregon, and you're getting confused. Pacific Northwest. Oh, okay, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Like that region. Yeah, Seattle, Seattle is not in Oregon. I get it. Okay. Grunge. It was great. The whole, <laughs> the whole joke about what has more brains than Kirk Cobain? The wall behind him. However, however, there was not an exit wound in the back of his head, was there? So I'm an asshole no, for even making yeah, that joke. Courting left shot. Because it was buckshot. Okay. <laughs> We can't get into this right now. Jeez, so much heroin. All right. Um, also, have you thought about doing a season on the most notorious haunts of each state? Like, talk about the history of each of the places, then talk about we the experiences 50 episodes people have there. We could do that. Of a season. Sorry, this is such a long email. This is not a long email, Emily, by the way, compared yeah. to some of them I get. Um, some people are like, hey, my family's possessed by a demon. Can you help me? And I'm no. like, fuck. Anyway, it says, um, keep up the great work, and I think you guys are amazing. So thank you, well, Emily. She's if, delusional. If you have anything you would like to say uh, to us, you can hit us up at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. 
gmail.com. Troy, take us out. This has been a hell of a ride. Oh, God. I'm here at Paul Massage Chateau in California. Almost every All my night drinks are empty. Wine tasting party. One of the favorites is it's light and crisp it's delicious the wine you drink the most should be the best and they take special care with it here because they know Chablis is America's most popular wine Parmesan Chablis I recommend it Thanks for listening. And this episode of the American Hauntings Podcast is written by Troy Taylor and is produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you're not a regular listener of the podcast, we'll hope you check out a bi-weekly dose of history. What? Oh, boy. <laughs> what was that? My empty cans. Hauntings, <laughs> Legends, Floor, and the Dark It was a ghost. It was American a ghost. history. My mic stand collapsed. Uh, you can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. See the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about shows, notes, photos, links, commercials and all that stuff I was telling you about earlier all that and more if you're a regular listener we hope you'll take the time to review us on Apple podcast app which apparently they have a desktop app too as you heard earlier and share the show with your friends neighbors relatives oh you can listen to it you can listen to it on desktop and you can see I only use it on my phone I know but you know there's a lot of people with a lot of different you know lifestyles well you you still post them on the website, right? Yeah. American Hauntings Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. You can see the Are new... they actually up to date? Because I they kept are. getting emails from people and go, okay. That was so like I'm... two times. Okay, well. And also the website. Uh, and I'm like, well, why don't you just listen on your phone? I know. Who I... goes to the website? But also the episode goes up at 6 a.m. And I don't put it on there till like 9 because I'm like, I'm not getting <laughs> yeah, up at 6. get up at the... 6. And I but can't... you put it on the night before. Well, I can't I can't post the embed because the embed's uh, not oh, live. Oh, oh, because oh, it doesn't. Exactly. So just be a broken thing. Okay. I don't know where I was. Um, for those of you who it write to us, and tell no us one's listening to this shows anyway. More often. Who knows? Well, you can They're waiting for another if you support Orson Welles commercial. Patreon. I hope people That's have been listening. Has anybody? I want to wait, 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 wait. I want to know if anybody's gone and listened to the peas thing. I so hope, if you have listened to the frozen peas outtakes from Orson Welles, they are hilarious. I hope and no I one's really, given you the satisfaction. No, I really hope someone has. And if you have, well, actually, I think somebody told me they had. But if you have listened to them on YouTube. I, Cody won't let me play them because they're six minutes long. Yes. So go and listen to them. They're very funny. Go to patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Orson you... Welles is an American legend. Let's be honest. Anyway. He just made shitty commercials when he got old because he was broke. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, <laughs> messages in a bottle, carrier pigeon, telegram, whatever. Until next time. <laughs> goodbye. So long. See you later. Oh, boy. How long was that? Pretty uh, long. I that think. was an hour and eleven minutes. <laughs> was it sorry, really? Uh, thank you for picking up my cans and stuff. Oh, I'm sorry. so much was, for forty-five minutes. I was but, in the moment. I don't know if you would come over and start doing this. And oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. You know? don't want to get your-